I didn't expect. I mean, I knew JP and uh, Becca are super anointed. I didn't expect to cry that much. Um, it's just something really, really um, <coughs> profound about declaring the truth of God and saying that he is worthy. He deserves a worship simply because he is who he says he is. And there is something really deep about that today. Uh, I don't know about you guys. I've had a very long day. <laughs> That's not the reason why I'm crying. <laughs> yeah, I'm usually a lot <laughs> more put together, but it's just something about today's worship where God gets so much glory when in the midst of the craziness, we're able to quiet down our circumstances and come before him and say, you're still worthy. Regardless of everything that's happening in my life, regardless of what this week has been like, you're good. You're still good to me. And um, so that's why I was crying. Okay. Um, so hi, my name is Susie Park, and I'm one of the uh, pastors at um, New Philly. If you haven't seen me, it's probably because I serve and I worship at our Hongdae campus. So it's a pleasure. I just met a bunch of you, like right outside. One of you is called Grace. One of you sounds something like Caitlin, but it's not Caitlin. Uh, <laughs> and the other one, I'm helpless. I'm so sorry. So I just met you guys. I'm really, really excited um, to be here at, at SNU. I don't know if you guys know, I was here back in 08. I was here on exchange student. I was here on language exchange. This is after... I uh, finished college. This is after I worked for a year, so I'm like super old. Um, so I came here as a postgrad, and I was just here during a gap year, just wanting um, to make something out of a gap year that I had after college. And I figured, you know, why not learn Korean? And uh, that's why I decided to come here. And little did I know that God had set up a trap for me. I had no idea that I would encounter him in such a fresh new way. And this happened like within the first three months that I was here. And that all just goes to say like God is able to do whatever the heck he wants in whatever short time period you, you give to him. Sometimes we come in with a mentality of like, how much can happen in three months? Like really? Like four months, like six months, like how much can I really change? But God surprised me. He surprised like a bunch of other people. And I'm hoping that he's also surprising you. Hopefully, you know, maybe three months ago, you never expected to be here on a Tuesday night. Uh, you should be out partying somewhere or, or something else. But you find yourself here, and it's really by the grace of God. And I don't take it for granted that you guys are here. Sometimes it doesn't feel like a sacrifice when you grow accustomed to it. But unto the Lord, this is a sacrifice. It matters to him that you show up here on Tuesdays. It matters to him that you make it a priority to be here, to connect with the word, to connect with people. Um, so thank you guys for being here. I don't take that for granted. I don't think any of the staff take that for granted either. So before we get into the word today, I'm actually really, really excited. Uh, I'm going to be preaching on the most enlightening book of the Bible, the happiest one of the Bible, and it's the book of Job. Uh, <laughs> so I hope you guys are ready, and hopefully it's very applicable to you guys. Are, are you guys in midterm week right now? No? Are you guys done with midterms and stuff? Just finished. Hallelujah. You guys made it. You are alive in one piece. <laughs> Some of you relatively made it out. Okay. Um, so before we get into the word, actually, uh, I want us to take a moment to pray. And the reason why I want us to pray isn't just like it's our token way to start a message. Like we have to start with prayer. Otherwise, we're just okay Christians, not super Christians. Uh, but it's... I. I would love for the Holy Spirit to move in our hearts because if your heart is not positioned right to receive the message today, I feel like I'm going to offend a ton of people. So uh, for you to not be offended, it really requires a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to begin by praying to God for him to open up and soften our hearts. If we come here with baggage, that God would get rid of all that, that we'd be able to just sit at his feet before his word and that the word and his Holy spirit will be able to do whatever work he desires. Okay. So let's pray. Oh, father, we just confess that we need you, that 
all of this that we do, all these songs that we sing, all these prayers that we pray, all these messages that we listen to, they are completely a waste of time unless you are at work in us. Unless you soften up our hearts, we are no better off being here than we would be grabbing a meal somewhere outside or partying it up outside or doing whatever else our flesh would desire. So we pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would soften our hearts, our minds. You make us pliable. You make us moldable by the power of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We humble ourselves before your word. We say, God, that we surrender. and We pray if there's anything that sets itself up in us against the knowledge of God, would you cast down whatever idol is there, that we be able to be sharpened, be pierced, and be transformed by the power of your word. We thank you, Father. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Woo. All right. So as I was uh, getting ready for today, I was really, really excited to be here at SNU. I was doing a little bit of research, and um, it's not because I'm very old, but also because I'm kind of like, I lost touch with a lot of what younger people are doing. Uh, so I was doing some, some of my own research. Um, and apparently one of the terms that sociologists and different, you know, journalists and, you know, in different articles, a, a term that certain people use to describe this generation is kind of derogatory, but it is a generation of entitlement the generation of entitlement. And let me begin by saying that the definition of entitlement, entitlement as a word, it means the fact of having a right to something, the amount to which a person has a right, the belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. And other synonyms for that are uh, due, like something is due me, uh, prerogative, recompense, Repayment, dueness, privilege, all these are words that are trying to pinpoint something that it's not just people within our generation that are, are perceiving that something special about this generation um, can be encapsulated by this word. But if we were honest with ourselves, I believe that that does describe many times the posture, the mentality, the, the the framework with which we live out our lives. And so I want to begin with a few pictures that I picked up from the internet. So first picture, it says, oh, I'm sorry. Did I offend your misplaced sense of entitlement? Let me apologize by saying I don't care. So this is, again, I said that you uh, would be a little bit offended uh, by me unless the Holy Spirit is at work in you. This is very sarcastic, obviously. This is saying, well, you feel entitled to something? That's great. I really don't care. You're still going to have to do the same thing as everybody else. Let's look at the next one. You are entitled to have an opinion. I'm just letting you know that it is stupid. Um, so whatever opinion we have doesn't mean that it is truth either, right? And that is... Our belief that what I'm entitled to my opinion and my opinion is my truth and it should be your truth as well. That comes from a sense of entitlement. And the next one, there, things go into two piles. Is either I want or not fair. So there's anything that we don't want or we don't like. Like somebody demands something from us and if it doesn't fall, fall in, the, in the pile of something I want to do, it becomes a reason to say it's not fair, you know? So these are kind of like just poking fun at this generation. Uh, I'll include myself with you guys. Why not? Uh, <laughs> uh, but now if we were to go a little bit deeper, is there a little bit of truth to this? I know it's like all in good humor and it's all supposed to be sarcastic, but is there a little bit of truth? Can we go on to the next one? It says, don't be upset by the results you didn't you don't get with the work you didn't do. So there's part of us that demands some kind of result without us actually having to pay the price for it. Like we feel entitled. It's 
I want something free and I want it now without me ever having to pay the cost for something. Uh, next one. Lack of planning on your part doesn't constitute an emergency on my part. That's kind of deep. <laughs> well, did, did that hit a point of conviction? <laughs> um, it's true. Sometimes we feel entitled like, hey, I'm having an emergency and I completely bypass the fact that it was my fault to begin with because I procrastinated. Um, but I feel like if it's an emergency to me, it should feel, it should be an emergency to everybody. Um, and last one, uh, this is a little bit more serious, but it comes from, uh, an article and this is, uh, words for teenagers. And I'll just read it out loud. Northland college principal, John Tapine has offered the following words from a judge who regularly deals with youth. Always we hear the cry from teenagers, what can we do? Where can we go? And my answer is this, go home, mow the lawn, wash the windows, learn to cook, build a raft, get a job, visit the sick, study your lessons, and after you're finished, read a book. Your town does not owe you recreational facilities, and your parents do not owe you fun. The world does not owe you a living. You owe the world something. You owe it your time energy and talent so that no one will be at war in sickness and lonely again. In other words, grow up, stop being a crybaby, get out of your dream world and develop a backbone, not a wishbone. Start behaving like a responsible person. You are important and you are needed. It's too late to sit around and wait for somebody to do something someday. Someday is now. And that somebody is you. This is really deep. Right? I don't think you need to be a teenager to be convicted by this, right? Uh, so we'll hold off on the slides for a bit. Um, so the first three were kind of like funny and sarcastic, like, ha ha, fine, fine. Maybe it's a little bit true. And the, the next three were a little bit like, oh, it's a little bit closer to home. Um, and I'm not like trying to condemn anybody here. Again, I'm like putting myself in your category as well. Uh, when I was just going through all these pictures and all these different sayings and slogans, um, I felt the Holy spirit, uh, pinpointing something in me as well. And it was that sense of entitlement. So the sense of entitlement, it distorts everything. Everything in our lives is distorted because we're seeing this through a lens of entitlement. So it contained our relationships with people and with God, our goals and our ambitions, our character and maturity and even you feel like you'd be exempt from this, but even our perception of truth is tainted by a sense of entitlement. And this is revealed when we equate, I don't like it to it is not true. And when this comes up, it, are there any like logic nerds here? Like, like you like, like logic, like a equals B, then B equals C, then A equals C. Like, yeah, yeah, right? So this is a logical fallacy. It's just two of us, great. <laughs> but hipsters, any logic hipsters in here? Wow, <laughs> definitely a nerd here. Um, so it's a logical fallacy, right? The, the premise of it is, is flawed. Um, and this sounds silly, but often this is actually the way that we think and it comes out in very, very subtle ways. And how does that happens? is like, for example, when we are wrestling in faith it, with our faith or wrestling with God, uh, we say something along the lines of, I can't believe in a God who would let this happen. Like if you've experienced an injustice in your life, um, you feel like I don't like it. It's unfair. Therefore it is not true. I cannot believe in this God. Does that make any sense? That's a very subtle way in which entitlement creeps into even our ability to perceive the truth or even, um, I can't worship because I haven't had my breakthrough yet. Something along those lines. And today's worship set was so like divine. And today's exhortation by Michelle was so divine. They're all going at it from like the same angle. Like he's worthy because he's worthy. Like he needs to be worshiped because he is God period. Like he doesn't need any other reasons uh, for him to deserve any worship. This is completely independent, completely divorced from what we feel, what we think he deserves. Um, it's like truth. It's not a feeling. It's not a, 
um, subjective reality in that sense. Um, so if there's anybody here who's taking notes, I'll make life very easy for you guys and give you actually an outline. And, and I will do this in hopes that it doesn't um, kill the, the excitement uh, just by giving you a preview to it. So this is the outline. First, we're going to go into entitlement. Uh, number one, we're going to go into the bad news. Three things God doesn't owe you. Yeah. Second is the good news. Owed nothing but given everything. Come on. And then third is how do we respond to this? There's four ways to respond incorrectly, and there's four ways to respond correctly. Is that cool? So you have a mental outline now. So I'm just going to plow ahead. I hope that you guys are able to follow just by having this outline kind of in your minds already. So if you haven't done so already, can you open up to the book of Job? Again, your favorite book at the entire Bible. If you're ever feeling depressed, read this book for QTs, and you'll feel much better about your life. Um, so starting with Job, uh, it's the book right before Psalms, the book right before Psalms. Um, so I'll begin with Job chapter one, and I'm actually going to go ahead and read the entire first chapter. If that's okay with you guys. Uh, Job chapter one, there was a man in the land of Uz or Uz. I don't know how you pronounce that. Whose name was Job, Job, not job. I've heard a lot of people say job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 300 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. This is like basically the Donald Trump of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would, uh, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of, of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also um, came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, oh, from going to and fro on the earth and walking, uh, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to, sa said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? So whose idea was this? Was it Satan's or God's? God's. Okay, so it's God's idea. Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger, messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck them down, uh, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, so still speaking, there came another and said, you know what happened? The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck them uh, down, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground 
and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So this is not a very encouraging narrative that we see here, right? And you feel like, okay, fine, he passed the test. Um, He was able to go through all this. He lost everything that he had, and um, he was still able to worship. That must be the end of it. But what happens in Job 2, basically, long story short, is things get worse. Um, He actually gets very, very sick. Um, Job chapter 3 is Job lamenting his birth. He says, basically, why was I born? It would have been better if I had never been born. Like, life sucks, basically. Then Job 4 all the way to Job 37. How many chapters is that? 33 chapters. So we just went through one chapter, right? So for 33 chapters, it's a back and forth between Job and his three friends. And they're trying to make, a, make sense of it all. They're trying to figure out, like, what in the world happened? You were the Donald Trump, and now you're no more than, you know, somebody that you would give change to in, in the corner of a street. Uh, so they're just basically trying to make sense of all this. Then Job 38 through 41 is God answering Job. And let's actually take a look at uh, Job 38 very quickly. So skim all the way to the end of, towards the end of this book. Job chapter 38. Let me read to you the first seven verses. So after 33 chapters of them trying to, you know, make sense of all of this, uh, 38 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements surely you know or who stretched the line upon it or on, on what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sank together and all the sons of god shouted for joy and it goes on and on god is basically being sarcastic here He's saying like, oh yeah, wise guy, let's see what you got. Where were you when I actually created the earth? Where were you when I spoke the word and stars came out of my mouth? Like billions and billions of stars came out of my mouth. Like, where were you since you're so wise? And you seem to have a lot to say for 33 chapters. Let's hear what you got to say. So he's being very rude, of course, especially to somebody who's lost everything, right? And he's being super sarcastic. And then finally, we get to Job, uh, you know, it goes on uh, for a few chapters. And finally, if you can flip all the way to chapter 42, what happens in chap- uh, Job chapter 42 is uh, it's twofold. One is God responds to God's answer. So after he's like, oh, yeah, wise guy, let's see what you got. So Job humbly confesses to the Lord and he repents. So that's his response to God's answer. And then God responds to both Job's friends and to Job. So if you look at uh, chapter 42, uh, verse 10, you see actually the end of the story is, and the Lord restored (coughs) the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So it's a pretty good ending in that he got double the amount. He's double the trump that he used to be. Um, And this is kind of the basic gist of the entire book of Job. Uh, It's just very, very quickly glossing through the entire book. Um, so a lot of times we look at this book and we come away from it with the wrong lesson learned. Uh, we come away with it thinking, all right, so no matter what happens in my life, all I have to do is worship. And then as long as I stay in that place, then I'm going to get double the blessing or I'm going to get double the fortune, double the sheep and oxen and camels and, and whatever it is that God took, uh, I'll end it in, in a better place. But that's why we're going to start with the bad news. First, well, one of the three things that God doesn't owe you at all, and he doesn't owe Job, is first, God doesn't owe you fulfillment. 
somehow we're kind of, we feel kind of entitled to that, right? Uh, God doesn't owe you fulfillment. So can we do this really quick? Can we flip back to chapter one? Let's flip back to chapter one. And you guys remember exactly how it began, right? Uh, there was a man in the land of Uz or Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And it could have gone on with verse two. It could have said, it would have continued saying he was poor as dirt. He had zero sheep, zero camels, zero oxen, zero donkeys, zero servants, zero children, and only a wife, a nagging one at that. So basically what he had after everything was taken away, right? So everything was taken away from him, including his health. And the only thing that remained for him were three very foolish friends and one nagging wife. So it's, it's almost better like to not have any of this four. Um, but basically all he was left with was really sucky. So in this scenario, God would have been even more merciful if he had been single and poor than just single with a nagging wife. Um, if you look at Job chapter two, verses nine through 10, it says, uh, then his wife, this is after he got really, really sick and he had boils all through his body, like from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, everything was burning. Everything was aching. There was no way that he could get any, um, any, uh, what do you call it? Uh, aloe. Uh, like refreshment, like, like, uh, any, any, um, freedom, I guess, from, from this thing that was tormenting him, there's no way that he could get any kind of comfort or any, um, yeah, any comfort basically other than taking broken shards of, of clay, like a broken piece of clay pot basically. And like scraping himself with it. Like that's how much pain he was in. Everything burned, everything ached. And on top of that, he had a nagging wife and three stupid friends. So he's like at the bottom of the bottom, at the bottom of his life. And then this is the advice. This is the great advice that his wife says to him. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women as one of the foolish women would speak, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. So basically what we hear from Job's wife coming out of her mouth is what a lot of us would feel entitled to feel at this point. Like it can't get any worse. Like I've done my dues. Like I've been faithful. I've been going out to a large group. I've been responsibly studying. Uh, I've been part of the as a new praise team. I've, I've been part of every 615. Like I've done everything I needed to do. And even then, um, all this has happened to me. A lot of us at that point, when we feel things aren't going our way, we would feel like, no, I think you'll be, you feel a little bit entitled to sin in your heart against God, to grumble in your heart against God. Um, but the truth is that your sin is never justified. Your sin is never justified. Your sin is never justified. No matter how bad things are, no matter how much has been taken away, no matter how much injustice you feel or how you've been wronged, it will never entitle you to sin. It will never justify for you to respond in sin. In, let me read to you a passage from Romans 9. And this is in the context of predestination and God's sovereignty. So it feels like it has nothing to do with this, but, but hear me out. This is what Romans 9, 11 through 16 says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. So they haven't deserved either punishment or reward in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. This is Jacob and Esau, right? As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. Who's talking here? Who hates Esau and who loves Jacob? God. So God hates people as well. And what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
every fiber in us, every bone in us should be screaming injustice. Why do you hate, why do you hate Esau? Why do you hate Esau? What has he done that's any worse than anybody else? So in us, there's a part in us that screams injustice. You should love Esau just like you love Jacob. But this passage is saying, no, God doesn't owe it to Esau. The fact that he loves Jacob is a part where we should be like, what in the world? You love Jacob? Like, why? What has he done to deserve that? So many times our sense of entitlement will flip that script. We'll be like, you should love everybody like Jacob. When in reality, if we were to get everything that we deserve, he should hate everybody like Esau. Does that make sense? So us here, this doesn't make sense. You guys realize that this doesn't make sense. Us being saved by grace, us being chosen, like him loving Jacob, him loving Abraham, Moses, David. That is a part that shouldn't make any sense to us. So that's the first thing. He doesn't owe you any fulfillment. He doesn't owe us to live full, fulfilled, accomplished lives where at the end of our lives, we feel like, yes, every day was well spent. Uh, I feel like I did something meaningful with my life. I think that's really good, but we are not entitled to that. God does not owe us this. Let me cut a little bit closer to home. He doesn't owe you a healthy church. He doesn't owe you a safe environment in your familias where you can work through sin. He doesn't owe you the staff people that are here, the crew people that are here that are sowing into your lives. God doesn't owe you that. All of it is grace. All of it is grace. Second thing that God doesn't owe you, and this will, a lot of you will, will feel very offended over here if you haven't been offended already. Second, God doesn't owe you an explanation. He just doesn't. He is God and he owes us nothing. He can do whatever he wants. If he chooses to reveal his will, it's out of grace. We are not owed any explanation. We're not even owed this. We're not owed his word. And how many of us take it for granted? Like we, we read it, we're like, ugh, yeah, I have to read the Bible again. Um, but imagine we didn't have this and we didn't have any way to get to know God or have any way to have God revealed to us. He still wouldn't owe us anything. He wouldn't owe us anything. So even this, having a Bible, either on your hand or in your phone or wherever you have it, uh, even that, we're not entitled to it. We're not owed it. And imagine he did give us an explanation, an explanation that we do not owe. Um, even if he did give us an explanation, it doesn't mean that we will understand because our understanding is limited. And the example that Romans also talks about is um, that same, you know, Romans that's talking about predestination and God's sovereignty. It says, will you say to me then, me is being God, right? Will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Does that make sense? Uh, I was going to bring a cup, but I didn't bring a cup. So I'll, I'll use this mic stand right here. So this mic stand is made of metal and plastic. So imagine I made this piece by piece. I designed it. I made sure that the joints work well, that all these things put together, they fit exactly well. And I put it in front of me and I put my mic inside and I use it for its original purpose. And this mic stand decides to talk to me and says, I don't want to be a mic stand. It says, well, it would sound more like, I don't want to be a mic stand. I, I deserve more. I wanted to be a music stand or something else like made, you know what I mean? Like how ridiculous is it? Like I made you do your work. Like you have one job, right? Uh, how ridiculous would it be for something inanimate, something like that was made for a specific use that has no will of its own, that, you know, it's just supposed to fulfill its purpose. How ridiculous is, is that, you know, for this to be asking me, like, why did you make me into a mic stand? I want to be something else. Um, in the same way, it's like, even I, you know, I'm not that smart, but like an inanimate object 
to someone who is not that smart, even that gap is like pretty big. You want, wouldn't you say, right? It's pretty big, right? It's not, it's not so small. Can you imagine a limited understanding person? Yeah. You, you guys ne- nobody said amen. They're like, are you sure? <laughs> I guess sure. I don't see much. Uh, anyway, um, so can you imagine that same kind of gap from something inanimate to somebody who has limited understanding? So from somebody who with limited understanding to someone who has unlimited, eternal understanding of everything, who created it into being, who set it in motion, who is sustaining it, and who will carry it on until it's fulfilled its purpose. Can you imagine that kind of gap? I think that gap is a lot bigger than me and this mic stand. We're both creative beings. We have that in common, right? We're both made of atoms. We're both created by God in some way or another. But between me and God, the gap is so much greater. He is uncreated. He is eternal. He, there's nothing that could hold him in. There's too many thoughts for us to count. The Bible says that it outnumbers the sound of the sea. Like this God is so much bigger, so much greater. And that gap between him and me is so much greater. It's like me demanding the mic. Like, don't you understand? I'm trying to explain to you why you were made into a mic. And the mic stand has, I'm trying to understand. It's just like that. If we were to demand from God, I want to know why this happened in my life, or I want to know how this is fair for us to question somebody who has completely eternal sovereignty and understanding over everything. The gap is so much bigger. So for us to say, well, you know, if he could try to explain himself, like, no, no, even if he did completely explain himself, even so we would only grasp like a tiny bit of his fullness, the fullness of his purpose, the fullness of his thoughts, the fullness of his ways, his ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. So he doesn't owe you an explanation. Even if he did give you one, you wouldn't fully understand, right? And so this is where our logic breaks down because it's an underlying belief from our mindsets that is one of, one of three beliefs, right? Number one, if there's no measurable empirical evidence, so if I can't touch it, smell it, see it, hear it, it is not true. Something in us, it's like, it needs to be I need to be able to grasp it. I need to be able to touch it. I need to be able to perceive it and grasp it with my own mind. Otherwise, it's not true. Um, it's either that or um, the, the typical postmodern thought mind frame is there, there's only an individual truth to each person. My truth is different from your truth, different from your truth, and no truth is better. Just all truths kind of coexist with each other, even if they're mutually exclusive. Um, that's a very postmodern mindset. Or you also have the blend of postmodern and irrational at the same time. Like if I don't understand it, it's not true. So that's like my truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. And then with the truth that I have, if I can't grasp it, if I can't prove it, if I can touch it, if it's not real to me, then it's not true. Um, so it's, that's where our logic breaks down in trying to demand an explanation from God. Does that make any sense? This is like so ingrained in the way that we think that we take it for granted, but it wasn't always like this. Now, the third thing, if you don't feel bad enough, third thing that he doesn't owe you um, is his presence. He doesn't owe you a smidge of his presence. The only reason why we get to feel and enjoy his presence is through grace. Nothing, 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 nothing we have done has earned us a hearing with the king. Nothing. Now, don't get me wrong when, when, when I talk about this, but... Uh, I talked to a lot of different people, some of them students, and a lot of people uh, would talk to me when they are going through a really dry spell or they're going through wilderness period. Um, and they say, you know, like, I can't feel God. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm having, you know, a crisis of faith. I don't know if he's really there. Um, and he, he hasn't made himself real to me. He hasn't shown himself yet. He hasn't manifested himself. Um, and so the first question uh, for me, when I asked them, uh, when I, ask them is, um, so have you been seeking him? That's my first question. Have you been seeking him? Because the Bible says seek and you'll find, right? Uh, so that's my first question. And more often than not, the answer is no. And I'm like, mm-hmm, what, what do you mean? <laughs> like you are here complaining to me that you don't feel God, that you don't experience his presence. So have you been seeking him? And they say no. And does it sound ridiculous to you? 
It's supposed to sound ridiculous to you. Like if you're not seeking him, of course, you're not going to find him. There's times when God does manifest himself in your life. And it's purely out of grace. When you're not seeking him, when he interrupts your life and it was completely unplanned, there are times like that. But when you're going through a wilderness period, like it's not that deep. Like it's not that mysterious. Like you have to seek him. You know what I mean? Like you don't need a word from God. You don't need a prophetic word. You don't need somebody to lay hands on you. It's like just as simple as seek him and you'll find him. And then my next question, if somebody says like, yeah, I've been seeking him. And, um, so I'll ask him how long for, and they'll say, usually it's like starting last week or like, you know, it's been three days or something ridiculous like that. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) so you expect God to be at your beck and call. Like as soon as you turn on, you know, like, okay, fine. I'm going into seek mode and, uh, like where, where is God? And you kind of expect him to show up at your beck and call within three days or within the first 20 minutes, you're like, fine, God, I'm going to do my QT today. Uh, it's the first time I've done it like in five months. I'm going to do my QT today. If you don't show up in the first five minutes, I'm out. Like I got stuff to do. I got things to study. And um, part of us is like, feels very entitled. Like, all right, I did my part. I'm going to wait it out for five minutes. I give you five minutes, got to show up. And it's like, it's like very entitlement based. I was like, who are you? Like, I was like, I'll come when I'm getting ready, you know, like, or I want to, sometimes it's just God wanting to see how hungry you are for it. Are you willing to fight for it? Are you willing to plow through? Are you willing to grow in faith? Are you willing to grow in perseverance? Uh, there's so many reasons why God would take a sweet time, you know, to, uh, meet you. Um, but we cannot approach him with that sense of entitlement. Like God, you owe me. I'm here in QT. Where are you? You know? Like I showed up, you didn't, uh, that's like really ridiculous. Right. Um, and let me show you a time when God did answer out of mercy. And this was in Exodus 33. So this is the famous passage when, uh, you know, Moses is in Mount, uh, in Mount Sinai. And this is how, after the whole golden calf incident and God will give him is he's about to give him the 10 commandments for the second time. And it says, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. He said, please. He was nice about it. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious on whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This very last verse is very important because God says, all right, I'll give you what you want. But it's not just because you showed up and not just because you asked nicely, it's because I will show mercy on who I will show mercy. It's his prerogative. It's his right. He comes in his own terms. We cannot manipulate God. We cannot guilt trip him into coming. We are not owed his presence. Does that make sense? So three things that we are not entitled to that God doesn't owe us in any way. Fulfillment. What's the second one? Explanation. And third one is his presence. So now we finally get to the good news. I I promised that there was some good news. And so let's read uh, Job 38. Sorry, I'm having you guys turn back and forth a lot. And so Job 38, it starts out with, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is that that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you. You'll make it known to me, et cetera, et cetera. So this is God finally answering him. And throughout the entire book of Job, there was a back and forth about whose fault was it or why this happened or how, how did this happen? Like how I was like this great guy one day and now like I've lost all my kids, I lost all my fortune and all I have left is this nagging woman and how did this happen? And they're going back and forth for 33 chapters. And finally, this is a time when God answers him. Um, let me, let me say first that this is our human reaction. Like, this is how any of us would react, right? Um, And let me challenge you with this thought. A lot of us approach this passage and approach this book in general as saying, God finally answered him, although he didn't owe it to Job. He finally answered him when he opened his mouth and he said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Blah, blah, blah. Basically, who are you? Who do you think you are? That's what God said. If that solely was God's answer, it's a terrible answer. Like, it's not addressing any of his questions. It's not answering things in any way. Um, It's almost like God wasn't listening for the last 33 chapters. And God just comes and say, who do you think you are? To question me. Um, And 
other people will, will hold that his answer doesn't come until chapter 42 when God says, fine, I will repay you for everything that was taken away and I'll give you double fold and I will basically give you justice and mercy on top of that. Um, I want to challenge you guys with this thought. Okay, this is a very unconventional way to look at the book of Job. But we have a PowerPoint slide for this. This is when God answered Job finally. Job 33, uh, 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, I don't think you guys like grasp the weight of this, but God didn't owe him anything. Can you imagine like railing against like President Obama or like Pakune or something like that and you go on for 33 chapters then at the end of those 33 chapters, Obama shows up and he's like, blah, blah, blah. And you're not even listening because you're like, oh my gosh, he actually showed up. What the heck? Like there should be a sense of awe. Like, yeah, I was questioning you. Yeah. Yeah. I said a lot of things maybe I shouldn't have because I didn't really know that you were listening this entire time, but like you showed up, you showed up, you came. You don't owe me anything. You don't owe me an explanation. You don't owe me your presence. You don't owe me like my understanding, but you came. So God's answer to Job was not, well, let me tell you, this is what happened. A, B, and C. That would have been such an insufficient answer to Job after everything that he experienced. So the only way that God could answer Job in the depths of distress, in the depths of despair, wasn't just through an answer but through a person. He answered Job through himself. This is something that should blow your mind, not just because he wasn't owed it, but this kind of answer, God's answer through a person, it answers every other question that you have. You know, like when you come before God and and you're like, why does this happen? Or, Oh, Lord, it's so rough or like, oh, I'm so anxious or like, I'm so homesick or I'm so lonely. And you come to God with all these things and God, instead of, you know, from a distance saying, well, it's because A, B, and C, he actually draws close to you. Have you ever had that happen? Where like, you forget what you were even complaining about. Like you complain, you complain all these things for 33 chapters and then God comes and all of a sudden nothing matters other than the fact that God is there with you. God answers as a person. And that's the only kind of answer that would be sufficient for someone who's going through what Job is going through. Actually, you can keep it off. That's okay. Sorry, I have you going back and forth. Um, And this in and of itself is grace. This is what grace is, that God didn't just give us a cheap answer. He just didn't say A, B, and C. He gave us himself. And that is the gospel for us first passage we're going to go through these pretty quickly john 1 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth next second corinthians 5 21 god made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of god romans six twenty three. for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans eight thirty-one to 33. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the gospel. This is the good news. We are owed nothing. If we're owed anything, it should be wrath. It should be hate. It should be punishment. But we are owed nothing by God, and he gives us everything. He gives us his presence, his peace, fulfillment, atonement, forgiveness. It should blow your mind because you're owed nothing. If anything, you're owed the exact opposite, and God answered in this way. When we are complaining, when we are dead in our trespasses, when we don't even love him, when we are against him, when we blaspheme and we speak against him, even before you were ever saved, um, 
God, in his mercy, he gave himself for us. He loved us first. Let me read uh, Romans 8, 30, uh, 31 through 38. Uh, we don't have a slide for that. Uh, but I will read it in, in the message. And it's not a translation. It's just an interpretation. But hopefully this makes it sink in a little bit more. So this is the message, chapter eight, uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking out for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. No trouble, not hard times, not hatred, nor hunger, nor homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in scripture. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They pick us off one by one. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic today or tomorrow, high or low, unthinkable or unthinkable. Absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master has embraced us. So in light of all this, we're owed nothing. We're given everything, not just in this lifetime, but also in the lifetime to come. How do we respond? And we're going to go through this fairly quickly before we go into a time of prayer. There are four ways to respond to it incorrectly. So this understanding that God is so far beyond what we could even understand, and he owes us nothing, and yet he gave us everything. There's four ways to respond incorrectly to this. And you have to be on guard against these things. One thing is fatalism. Like, there's nothing I can do about it anyway, so I try. You know, like, God is in control. He's going to do whatever he wants. Fatalism. Like, why should I even try? Why should I come out here? Why should I try loving him? Why should I seek him? If he wants to come, he'll come. If I don't seek him, he won't come. You know what I mean? Um, there's the danger of falling into fatalism. And second way to respond incorrectly is unworthiness. Like, I am, yes, I am deserving nothing. I am warm. I am worth nothing, 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 nothing. This is partially true. We are worth nothing. But that's not where the story ends, Right? So there's a danger also in falling into unworthiness. Third is condescension. Well, you know, I guess I'm chosen and they're not. There's nothing I can do about that. Like, I can't make you choose them. So who am I to say any difference? So what's the point in showing them grace or kindness? So you become like prideful and arrogant. Like, oh, I have God's grace in my life. You don't. That sucks for you. Um, That's condescension. That's not spirit of thanksgiving that's not a spirit of grace of awe of what god has done for us and lastly a spirit of comparison and jealousy so this is another way to respond to it incorrectly how come they get this so i have my portion they have their portion how come they get this and not me i am in lack they have something that i don't and it can go on forever like the way that we compare ourselves to each other like well they have this i don't have this or they have this anointing but i have this anointing they're much cooler i'm not we could go on forever comparing um seeing things from our own perspective without fully understanding that what god has given you as your portion uh, is something that he has ordained and there are four ways, in contrast to these four ways, to respond incorrectly. So the incorrect ways are fatalism, unworthiness, condescension, or a spirit of comparison and jealousy. There are four ways to respond correctly to this, to this grand scheme of God being in control. We're owed nothing, and yet God gave us everything. First way is awe and wonder at God's mercy. Like you cannot ever graduate from this. Like you can never get to a point where your heart is so jaded and so hardened to the fact that God decided to have mercy on you simply because he wanted to show mercy, simply because of that. Like none of us have received his mercy because we earned it. So that's a way to respond correctly to this awe and wonder at God's mercy. Second 
It's simple thanksgiving. How many times have we thanked him for carrying us through this past week or saving us or finding ourselves somewhere we never imagined ourselves to be even six months ago? Um, We're so quick to forget everything that God has done and how God has answered prayers, both with the yeses and noes. We often fall into a spirit of grumbling and complaining and seldom take the time to give him thanks. And being in a posture of thanksgiving, it will restore the sense of joy of our salvation. There's nothing that can harden your heart quicker than bitterness, than entitlement, than comparison, than all these other things that are really working against a sense of thanksgiving. Third is seeking and desiring for God without a sense of entitlement, but childlike faith. Childlike faith is the way that God is asking us to seek him. So throughout all this, I hope you don't get the wrong message from this. It's not that, oh, I'm not allowed to ask anymore because I'm not entitled, because I'm unworthy or whatnot. The correct way to respond to this kind of understanding, this kind of revelation is I need to seek you with all my heart, with all my soul, all my mind, all my strength, not with a sense of entitlement, but childlike faith for both his wisdom as it's revealed in his word, for his guidance in our decisions. We're allowed to ask him, God, should I take this course next, next semester? Um, should I, um, should I wear this or should I? I don't know. I feel like God thinks it's kind of cute. You ask him, like, God, just look on me. And God's like, ah, that's so cute. I feel like there's something really genuine and childlike about that. Maybe you won't hear, like, wear the blue one. Like, you won't hear God answering in that way. But I think he enjoys that you take him into consideration. You know, it's like a growing relationship with God. Um, and I feel like there's a childlike faith in that, in, in asking God and seeking him with childlike faith, without any entitlement, without any strings attached, without any sense of like, you owe me, tell me, blue or, or black, you know? Like, he doesn't owe you anything, but in childlike faith, open-handed, asking him for what should I do? Where should I go? Uh, is this the right decision to make? Am I doing the right thing? Is this a sin? Things like that where you need God's conviction, you need God's answer. It's a good thing for you to seek for his guidance and his wisdom. We can also seek for his spirit and his presence in our lives. There's nothing that God enjoys more than answering our prayers with himself even more. I think one of the best ways to get through uh, like a, like a slump when you're going through a slump and you feel like you're spiritually dry is consistently going before the Lord and saying, God, I need hunger. God, I need you. I need, I need to need you. You know what I mean? I need to need you. I want to want you. I desire to desire you. Um, that's something that God honors and God answers as well with himself. And also for the power to overcome sin and for authority in our lives to release life as well. These are all things that we are given full-blown permission to seek after and do it with fervency, do it with zeal, do it with passion. All these things are there for us. They're made available for us to seek. So four ways to respond correctly, awe and wonder at God's mercy, thanksgiving, seeking and desiring without a sense of entitlement, but childlike faith. And the last one, and this is what I'll close with is diligence and a sense of mission and purpose. If you live life with an understanding that first of all, God owed you nothing and he gave you everything and that your life is not an accident, that what you have was God given and it was given for a purpose and your place where you are for a purpose, there should be something in you that begins to say, all right, then let's not let this go to waste. There's nothing that um, frustrates me more than when I talk with somebody who's like, well, what's the use? I'm only here for three months. I'm only here for four months. And I'm like, exactly. You only have three months. You only have four months. What are you waiting for? Like every day counts. Every minute counts. Like what? Why is there not this sense of urgency and purpose and mission? And there should be a part in you that, that says, man, I got to make every day count. 
when you live life with this understanding that you are given everything that you needed to be successful in this season that God has ordained for you, there should be this fire built up in you for, all right, let's go then. It's game time. There's nothing to lose, everything to gain. God has set us up for, uh, set me up for success. Anything that I like, God will give me. There should be like that responsive faith. And so there's nothing more like, uh, like, oh my gosh, like get a grip. Well, then when I hear somebody saying like, what? I like, what? I only have three months or like, but God didn't give me what he gave them. Or I don't have the gifting that they have. Or it's like, oh my gosh. Like, do you see what God has given you? Do you see that God has ordained you to be here right now? And this cannot be a waste. This cannot be a waste. Um, there should be that kind of fire in you. Even if like the staff here, the crew here wanted to like hold you back, like stop loving God that much. Stop praying so much. You should be like, no, I want to love God more. Like this should be like, can't hold me. You know, like this should be that kind of like desire in you. Like no matter what anybody says, no matter what kind of atmosphere or spiritual temperature is around me, there should be in you like this desire of like, I cannot let this time go to waste. You understand? Like, don't wait for somebody to be like, come on. You don't want to pray. You don't want to come out to a large group. You don't want to serve. Like, come on. Like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be dragged into these things. But there should be an, a desire that is birthed from within you. Like, God, you've given me all these things. I'm so grateful. I am, I was lacking, but you gave me everything that I needed. And you ordained this time for me. I will not let it go to waste. I will do this for you. And I will do it with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength.